you are listening to the podcast from Mosaic Church. Stay tuned after it for more info about how to get and stay connected with our church family. Now, let's dive into this week's message. Hi, everyone. Welcome today. Your scripture reading is going to be from Mark chapter 14. They took Jesus to the high priest and all the chief priests, the elders, and the teachers of the law came together. Peter followed him at a distance right into the courtyard of the high priest. There he sat with the guards and warmed himself at the fire. The chief priests and the whole Sanhedrin were looking for evidence against Jesus so that they could put him to death, but they did not find any. Many testified falsely against him, but their statements did not agree. Then some stood up and gave this false testimony against him. We heard him say, I will destroy this temple made with human hands and in three days will build another not made with hands. Yet even then their testimony did not agree. Then the high priest stood up before them and asked Jesus, are you not going to answer? What is this testimony that these men are bringing against you? But Jesus remained silent. And gave no answer. Again, the high priest asked him, Are you the Messiah, the Son of the Blessed One? I am, said Jesus. And you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming on the clouds of heaven. The high priest tore his clothes. Why do we need any more witnesses, he asked. You have heard the blasphemy. What do you think? They all condemned him as worthy of death. Then some began to spit at him. They blindfolded him, struck him with their fists and said, prophesy. And the guards took him and beat him. While Peter was below in the courtyard, one of the servant girls of the high priest came by. And when she saw Peter warming himself, she looked closely at him. You also were with that Nazarene Jesus, she said, but he denied it. I don't know or understand what you're talking about, he said, and went out into the entryway. When the servant girl saw him there, she said again to those standing around, this fellow is one of them. Again, he denied it. After a little while, those standing near said to Peter, surely you are one of them, for you are a Galilean. He began to call down curses and he swore to them, I don't know this man you're talking about. Immediately, the rooster crowed the second time. Then Peter remembered the word Jesus had spoken to him. Before the rooster crows twice, you will disown me three times. And he broke down and wept. That's the reading of God's word. And all God's people said, amen. Amen. Welcome today to Mosaic Church. My name is Morgan. I'm a lead pastor. We're moving here through the book of Mark. And you know, uh, there's a reason that people love courtroom dramas. There's a reason uh, people love to watch, film, make courtroom dramas. There's a, there's a reason that some of you, you haven't missed Judge Judy in like 10 years. Uh, there's a reason that, that you love to watch uh, all 17 seasons of, of Law and Order. That was just maybe even this past week alone, if you know what I mean. There, there's a reason we love to watch courtroom dramas. Courtroom films, films like uh, A Few Good Men, uh, To Kill a Mockingbird, Amistad, The Hurricane, uh, Just Mercy. These all take place in and climax in a courtroom. Why do we love these things? Well, it's because someone or something is on trial. And so, and so it's really fitting that in, in a way that the, that the life and the story of the greatest human who's ever lived, Jesus of Nazareth, would take place in and climax with, of all things, a trial. 
And here, uh, as he's in the trial of his life, as he's on trial for his life, Jesus is called to take the stand and to testify uh, for his own defense here. And as he gives his defense, we're going to see, and Mark's going to show us, that there are actually three distinct, three unique, and three simultaneous trials that are going on all at once. What do the trials of Jesus show us about who he is? And how do the trials of Jesus speak to our trial? We're facing in our nation today, right now. We're going to see today as we look at the three trials that are going on all at once. We're going to see a public trial. We're going to see a private trial. And finally, we're going to see a priestly trial. But let's go here, number one, and look at a public trial. Well, what's this one? Well, we're, we're going to pick up right where we left off last week. Last week when we ended, we saw that there was a mob that had come to arrest Jesus. They arrest him and they bring him. And now at verse 53, it says, they took Jesus to the high priest and all the chief priests, the elders and the teachers of the law came together. So what did Jesus' accusers do here in this first circus of a trial? Well, you know, first they try to piece together this evidence and testimony against him, but it's it's so bad and it's so bungled. And and the people that they bring to testify against him can't even tell the same lie straight at the same time. But Jesus, Jesus stays silent. Second, they, they try to frame Jesus for being a kind of terrorist, uh, uh, for being a kind of national insurrectionist. Uh, they, they claim that he had threatened to blow up the Jewish national temple. But Jesus, Jesus stays silent. And finally, Caiaphas, who's the high priest, he's the judge over the trial. He, he tries to bully Jesus because Caiaphas sees this trial is going nowhere. And Caiaphas gets up from behind his bench, as it were. He comes face to face with Jesus of Nazareth. And he says this, he asks him this. He says, are you not going to answer? What is this testimony that these men are bringing against you? But Jesus, Jesus stays silent. So Caiaphas, he he cuts through the whole facade and he gets down to business and he point blank asks Jesus the single solitary question he's been wanting to ask him from the beginning. He asks him this single question, are you the Messiah, the son of the blessed one? So Caiaphas is asking him here, tell us whether you are the son of God, the the son of David, uh, the blessed one, the Christ. Tell us whether or not you are our Messiah and King. Tell us that Jesus. That's what he's asking. But this of course is a loaded question. This of course is a trick question. And here's why. The Jews were under Roman occupation. They already had a foreign king named Caesar. And so right here and, and right now, if Jesus says he is the Messiah. If Jesus says he is their king, they can accuse him of treason and backdoor Jesus into the Roman death penalty. Are you the true king? Caiaphas asks. But this time, this time Jesus doesn't stay silent. This time when Jesus speaks, what he says doesn't just put this high priest, this whole courtroom on trial. What Jesus says puts the whole world on trial. What does he say? Jesus said to him, you have said it yourself. I am. He says, nevertheless, I tell you hereafter, you will see the son of man sitting at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. 
What's this? Well, Jesus here, he, he, he's mashing together. He's here's for all you Gen Xers. He's making a mixtape here of two big Jewish concepts from the Hebrew scriptures. First, he's quoting Daniel seven, where in Daniel seven, there was this mysterious divine figure called the son of man, given authority to judge the whole earth. And he's mashing it up with Ezekiel one, a place where the clouds of God represent not only the glory of God, but the place from which God comes to judge the whole world. What's Jesus doing? Oh, he's going way beyond Caiaphas's question. Jesus is claiming for all the world to hear in one sentence, on one stage, in his courtroom, under oath. His own testimony is this. He's saying, I'm not just the king. I am the judge of the whole world. He's saying to Caiaphas and the whole courtroom there, you, you think you're judging me. I'm judging you. And in case you missed this part, he's saying to them, no matter what you do to me now, one day I'll be back. I'll be back. And then it says the high priest tore his robes and said, he has blasphemed. Right here, right now, with these words, Jesus puts, in a way, the whole world on trial. Now pause. Let's just pause for a moment and ask this question. What does the public trial of Jesus show us? Well, more than anything, I think it shows us this. The public trial of Jesus shows us who we really are. It shows us who we really are. Why? Because when the people of God, or when people, excuse me, when people put God on trial, it shows more about them than it could ever say about him. Or I'll put it like this. If and when I put God on trial in my life, it always shows more about me than it does about him. Right after uh, World War II was over and the German people began to catch on to the magnitude of what had happened there in their nation with the Holocaust and the war, they began to experience, you can read this in history, a crisis of conscience. And there was a play written about it from your favorite 20th century German playwright and mine, Guter Rutenborn. Anyway, it was called The Sign of Jonah. It was a real play, The Sign of Jonah. And in the play, It shows the German people trying to grapple with their collective guilt over what had been done. And they are asking, how could such a terrible thing happen in our country? Whose fault is it? And they began to blame one another for it because they recognized that that someone somewhere deserved to be put on trial for all the bad things that had happened, all the lives that had been lost. But as they did, of course, people began to pass the buck. The average person said in the play, it's not my fault. It's not my fault. It's the soldier's fault. And the soldiers all said, well, it's not really our fault. We were just following orders. It's really the, the military commander's fault. And of course, the military commanders uh, said, well, it's not our fault. The, the, the fault lies all the way at the top. And then all of them together, all the people collectively look up and they say, oh, we can keep passing the buck all the way to the top. And they realize who they can put on trial for all the evil of the Holocaust. They realize they can put God on trial for all the evil, all the suffering in the world. And they do. And in the play, they actually put God on trial. They put him in the dock, put him on the stand, and they actually sentence God. And this is what their verdict reads. Quote, let him become a wanderer on the earth. Let him become homeless and hungry and thirsty and let him die. And when he dies, let him 
be disgraced and ridiculed. Isn't it amazing? Yeah. They look out. They, they see evil in the world and they say, God could have stopped it, but he did it. So what's happening and what's happening in the world is his fault. He should pay for what has happened in their moment of crisis. There's, there's no reflection. There's no repentance. There's no learning. There's no humility. See, when we put God on trial, it shows way more about us than it ever does about him. Because really, in trials of any kind, and you know this, the truth is, it's really us that's on trial. It's we who are on trial, not Jesus. And looking back at this trial right here, this sham of a trial, you can see it's not really Jesus who is on trial in Caiaphas's courtroom. It's not really the behavior of Jesus that's being tested here. Can, can you see? It's everyone around him who's being tested for their response to the son of God. When we put God on trial, it says way more about us than it ever could about him. I wonder when our national, international, global trial is over, what it will show about us, what we will say about ourselves when we look back. How will we respond now? To Jesus. That's number one. That's a public trial. But second, and at the same time, we're going to look at number two. There's also, at the same time going on, there's a private trial. And while Jesus is on trial in public upstairs, Mark actually captures for us another trial happening downstairs in the courtyard with guess who? Guess who it is? Well, yeah, you guessed it. It's, it's your boy. It's your boy, Peter, as always. And verse 54 says this. Peter followed him, followed Jesus at a distance, right into the courtyard of the high priest. And there he sat with the guards and warmed himself at the fire. While Peter was in the courtyard, one of the servant girls of the high priest came by. When she saw Peter warming himself, she looked closely at him. You also were with that Nazarene Jesus, she said, but he denied it. And not once, not twice, but three times. Why? Why did Peter privately failed Jesus here. You know, a lot of commentators, a lot of thinkers, writers have tried to answer that question. But I think, I think right here, I think Mark is far less interested in trying to answer the question, why did Peter fail Jesus? And he's more trying to answer the question, how did Peter fail Jesus? He's trying to show us how it happened. So we should just ask, how did Peter privately fail his trial? I'm going to try to try to show you two ways. First, here it is. First, in the middle of a trial, Peter only followed Jesus at a distance. He only followed Jesus at a distance. And let me let me try to show you what this looks like in a slightly humorous way. Now, maybe my pain can be your gain. For years in our marriage, my wife Carrie and I, we would have the same fight. And if you're married, you may have that same fight with your spouse or if, you know with you if you're single with your roommate or you got that same fight with a friend. And our same fight always went like this me you spend too much money her well i'm just trying to take care of our family me well you're not doing a very good job if you spend too much her i'm sorry i'm just doing my best me you know you've got a problem with money her well maybe but all i know is that when we fight about it you always walk away feeling right and I always walk away feeling worse. Me. Well, maybe that's just God trying to deal with you. 
not my finest moment as a husband or as a human. Let's just be honest. And then that kind of same thing, that fight went on for years and years until one day, and I'll never forget it, the pain of that same fight, of that same relational trial. It was so bad. It got so bad that I cried out and I, I asked God, I said, why is this happening? Why do I keep going? Why do we keep going there? And in that moment, I felt God say to me something in that way that you know, if you're a Christ follower, how, how God speaks to you. I heard him say to me, what I know he saw, what certainly Carrie saw, and probably what you're seeing right now, he said, Morgan, you're the one with the problem. You're the one with the problem. And somehow that, that arrow found its way through my armor and it struck my heart and it pierced me. And I went back weeping and crying and repented to her. I said, I'm so sorry. You were right and I was wrong. It's every spouse's, of course, favorite words to hear, but she deserved them. But the point is up till, uh, up till then for years, I was just like Peter, uh, only following Jesus at a distance in that area of my life, in the area of money. And, and for years, when that trial came, I moved away from Jesus, not toward him. I only broke through in the end when I finally moved toward him. Let me tell you, in a trial, if you want to make it, you don't move further away from Jesus. You get closer. You move closer. Let me ask you today, what armor, what armor might you be wearing to keep Jesus at a distance, to keep Jesus out. You know, Goliath, remember the whole David and Goliath deal? Goliath and the story, David and Goliath. Goliath had all kind of armor, didn't he? Big, big shield, big spear, big sword, big helmet, all that. But do you know why he had and wore all that armor? Well, looking back, scholars say it's likely because he was nearly blind. Many scholars believe he had a pituitary malfunction, dysfunction that caused not only giantism, but also causing near blindness. And you can see this, of course, in the text. He says, come here so I can fight you to David. He says that. Well, why would he have to have him near? Well, a blind man can't fight a threat at a distance. He needs a threat to come near. Why are you carrying sticks? He said to David, as in sticks, plural, David's only carrying one stick. Goliath, you see, he needs an assistant to help him down on the battle floor to carry his shield. Man, the shield went as much as that man did. Now, Goliath can carry his shield himself. He needed the assistant to help point him in the right direction. He can't see. Goliath wore armor, held up his shield to compensate for his blindness. This was me. In that moment, maybe this is you in another moment, holding up a shield to compensate for blindness somewhere, somehow. But let me tell you, all battles do, all trials do is expose our blindness, which is this. Our true blindness is all the ways we stay distant from Jesus. Again, if you want to make it in a trial, if you want to make it in this trial, your trial right now, don't keep your distance from Jesus. Move closer. But the second way Peter fails him, and we see that this is profound, I think. In the middle of a trial, oh, Peter warms himself with the wrong things. He warms himself with the wrong things. You know, when we face difficulties, when we, when we face trials, when the world around us goes cold and goes dark, it's just normal. It's just natural. We, we try to find stuff to keep our, ourselves warm with. But where does Peter turn? It says, there he sat with the guards and warmed himself at the fire. 
Hope you'll catch this. Instead of going back and sitting in the company of the disciples, instead of going back and warming himself with his fellow followers of Jesus, instead of warming himself with his friends, Peter turns to, he sits with the same guards that had just arrested and betrayed his teacher and his Lord Jesus. Uh, And so I I, listen, I want to tell you now, now is the time to warm yourself with the right friends and the right people and the right things. Now is not the time to endlessly hit refresh on the news cycle and some desperate hope it's going to keep you warm and your faith strong. Of course, of course, we need to know what is happening. Facts, after all, are our friends. We need to know. But as humans, let me tell you, it takes more than facts to survive a trial. As Christian people, come on, think about it. What resources has Almighty God given us to stay warm? Well, of course, on one hand, he, on one hand he's given us each other. So, so let's get online together like we're doing right now. Get on the phone together. Talking, texting, group meeting, Zooming, Google Hangout meeting, podcasting. When we can, where we can, how we can. Don't let the guards of this present moment be your only company in your hour of need. I need need you to encourage me. I need to encourage you. We need to warm each other. And of course, most of all, God has given us his presence and his Holy Spirit to keep his warmest followers of Jesus. His Holy Spirit's compared to a fire. We're commanded after all to fan into flame the gift of God. The Hebrew prophets spoke of God's word as a, as a what? A fire that burned in their bones. Carrie and I, now we begin uh, every day. We, we begin our day praying for you, encouraging one another, praying for each other and for this church and for our world. Don't, don't warm yourself with a false fire. Don't let your first primary company be the news. Don't think the guards of this world can guard your heart in your trial. Doesn't the psalmist tell us that God will keep in perfect peace the one whose mind is fixed on him? He does and he will. But Peter doesn't. Peter doesn't do that. He only follows Jesus at a distance. He only warms himself with false fires. And of course, in a very real way, Peter's a lot like us, isn't he? He's like us. He's our stand in, in the story. Peter's human. And in his own personal private trial with Jesus, he fails. But I want to tell you today, right now, that you don't have to, that we don't have to anymore. We can do what Peter didn't. We can do what those jurors in that first century courtroom didn't. We can pass our trial, our every trial, if we'll see, if we'll respond rightly to the unique sentence, this unique verdict handed out in the final trial happening in this passage. Because there isn't just a public trial. There isn't even just a private trial happening. But there is, at the very center of all of these, there is, finally, number three, there's a priestly trial happening, going on as well. And this final trial changes everything. What do I mean? All through the Hebrew scriptures, what Christians call the Old Testament, there's the, there's the storyline of the priest. And priests, especially one person called the high priest. Uh, the priest did a number of special things. The priest took care of the people. They met their, their needs as they could. They, they offered sacrifices for sin. They interceded between heaven and, and earth. But one thing the priests did in specific is fascinating. The priests were responsible for putting down plagues. 
The priests were responsible for putting down plagues. Let me try to show you. In Exodus 32, uh, Old Testament, while Moses is up on the mountain with God, you remember Charlton Heston and the special effects and all the, uh, the, 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 the Ten Commandments and all that, the, the people... While Moses is up there, the people forget God, that, they, that God had saved them, had delivered them from slavery. And while Moses is up on the mountain, they, they cast their jewelry and they melt it down and they, they, they forge an animal, a golden calf, and they begin to worship that animal just like the Egyptians had worshipped animals. Their hearts were on trial. What they were worshipping was being exposed and they fail. And so a plague breaks out among them until Moses acting like a priest, went back up the mountain and interceded with God to end the plague and to stay with his people. In verse 17, it says, And the Lord said to Moses, I will do the very thing you have asked, because I am pleased with you, and I know you by name. Flash forward a few years later, there's another trial. This time the people aren't forgetting God, they're complaining about God. There's a rebellion Another plague breaks out, and this time it isn't Moses, but it's his brother, Aaron, now the high priest, who stands in the gap. Moses tells him to take something called a censer. It was uh, filled with God's sweet-smelling holy fire, and to run throughout the camp with that fire, with that anointing. And verse 47 says this, so Aaron did as Moses said, and he ran into the midst of the assembly. And no, no, Aaron's not practicing good social distancing here. Let's just acknowledge it. But he is doing something else. Look at this. It said the plague had already started among the people, but Aaron offered the incense and made atonement for them. And I love this verse. He stood between the living and the dead and the plague stopped. A few years later, flash forward, Numbers chapter 25, there's yet another trial. The people, you can read the story, they begin to sleep with each other, uh, use their bodies in ways God did not intend, and they justify it, and a plague breaks out. And this time, it's Aaron's son named Phinehas, functioning as a high priest, who ends the evil. He puts down the plague by putting a spear through the source of the evil, so to speak. And the people are healed. What am I saying? What am I saying? Am I saying the coronavirus, COVID-19 is the same thing? Am I saying this is God's judgment on the world, on our nation? Well, listen, if there's one thing I've learned from church history, maybe you've seen this too, it's that those who make pronouncements in the moment of what God must be doing at that moment, they are frequently, if not embarrassingly, wrong about what they say. And we would do well to remember that, to have some humility and to learn a lesson from history. Think about it. In your life, in your own personal history, it's really only looking back years later on something that happened. Can you really see, can you really say with even a grain of salt, really say what God was doing, how much more should we have a larger grain of salt in our moment now when we begin to suspect or say what we think God is doing? Let's not be too eager to deal in unpleasant judgment. But yes, these stories certainly show that plagues can come from the human sin of the moment. But really, 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 plagues in the end, they just come because we live in a fallen world, broken by a greater disease, a greater plague on humanity, 
It's the plague of sin. See, sin is the plague that causes us to hoard and not to give. Sin is the plague that causes us to take and not to share. Sin is the plague that causes us to turn away from God, to turn away from our neighbor, to only follow God at a distance uh, because we think everything is fine with the world and we're content to warm ourselves with our small, pitiable, false fires. What do we need to see? How can we be healed? What can change our hearts to follow God up close? Here it is. It's by seeing the verdict of the priestly trial, the verdict of this priestly trial. What's that? Well, have you noticed the person with whom Jesus has come face to face right here? Who is he? It's the high priest of Israel, the one who is supposed to intercede for the people, the one who is supposed to sacrifice, to take away the people's sin and to point to the love and the heart and the purposes of God. But does Caiaphas do what Moses, Aaron, Phineas did? No. Instead of interceding with God, Caiaphas, incredibly, Caiaphas judges God. This high priest fails his trial, but there was another high priest standing right before him who would pass. Jesus of Nazareth, God's true and final high priest is coming literally face to face with his human counterpart, Caiaphas, the human high priest. Jesus is doing what Caiaphas could not. And he goes beyond what Moses, Aaron, Phineas could do, what any priest, what any religious figure, what any founder of any other faith could ever do. See, instead of merely just interceding with God, Jesus was interceding as God. Instead of just speaking to the plague, he was about to become the plague of human sin itself. He was about to get that sentence that those people in that plague pronounced, the sentence that we all deserve for all the ways we have forgotten God or complained about God or or used our bodies selfishly in ways that don't acknowledge God. Jesus Christ on the cross became that cosmic wanderer and he died homely, hopeless, hungry, disgraced, thirsty, and ridiculed. What was he doing? Like Aaron, he was standing, can you see, between the living and the dead. And he said, he prayed, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they do. What was he doing? He was saying to you, to me today, this is how much I love you. But he didn't stay dead, did he? No, the the plague of sin couldn't keep him dead. He was raised back to life. And now, now the book of Hebrews written by those early Christians, they, they, they said, he is our high priest who lives forever by the power of God. And now, now you've got to catch this. Now he has given us the right to become his kind of priest, lowercase p, in our own kind of way. We, the, the, the New Testament scriptures say is, Christ followers, we are a kingdom of priests. And what do priests do? They stand between the living and the dead and they intercede with almighty God. They care for people's needs. And now, let me tell you, now is the time, church, we are being called upon to do this. If you are a Christian and you have not become aware of this, allow me to ring this heavenly bell, so to speak, in your ear for a moment. You have been given something called the priesthood of the believer. That means you can intercede and God will respond. And we can see and know from history that when crises have come, that when Christians have prayed and prayed and prayed and interceded that the tide has been turned. 
Church, we have a greater final high priest whose grace and power now extends to us. Let's believe that and use those gifts. What am I saying today? How can we apply this? Let me try to give you three main thoughts here as we begin to close. Number one, I want to encourage us. Here's how you can apply this message today. Number one, we can pray as priests. Pray as priests because right now, in our present moment, this is part of our calling. If we only make it through what we're going through now and somehow our church only becomes more sophisticated and we don't become more spiritual and we don't go deeper into the heart of God and move closer to Jesus through all this, we will have missed our moment. I would encourage you to to join us every Friday on our prayer call at noon. You can get on that through being on our email list and we'll let you know. Number, number two, so first let's pray as priests. Number two, let's maximize what God can do. That's the point of all this today. Didn't God say, because he did, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves, will pray, will turn from their wicked ways, won't I hear from heaven and won't I heal their land? He says this, listen, let's maximize and believe in what God can do. And finally, and this is so important for us as we begin to face our hopefully near-term future. Let's do this. Let's rhythm and respond. Rhythm and respond. And here's what I mean. For the next weeks going forward into our future, each and every day of the week, we, Mosaic Church, will be releasing new online video and audio content aimed around a particular theme each day of the week in a particular direction. You'll be getting uh, uh, one constant source of content every morning from Mosaic at Large and again in the afternoon. If you have children or students or both, we'll be giving you another piece of content, another thing for families and students and youth to be able to do. And we would encourage you to work. Now, here they are these rhythms into your life. Here's here's what ours are going to be. First, Mondays are for motivation. We'll send you a short video encouraging you to start your week. Tuesdays are for talking. We'll be having a a, a roundtable discussion, six feet apart, of course, at least, around some particular topic or or question people are asking. Third, Wednesdays are for wellness. You'll be hearing from our our, our counselors, mental health experts, maybe doing some fun stuff as a church at large. Thursdays are for thinking. We'll be talking about church history, uh, looking at the past, some deep theology in there. Uh, Fridays are for faith. Again, a shorter video encouraging you to, to, to believe and to press through whatever fear or doubt you may be facing. And finally, what I really want to focus this on is that Saturdays are for sharing. Saturdays are for sharing in two ways. First, sharing us mosaic online, encouraging friends or family to, 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 to catch what we're doing here online each and every weekend. So share us online. But second, even more importantly, is to share through something that we're putting together called our care team, our care team. Uh, That's just people who would say, you know what, I'm available. I'd like to do some, maybe some grocery run. I want to figure out how to connect with the elderly, care for the sick in ways that are meaningful, but no, don't require personal contact. We know many of you who used to be team members here, still are team members here, but you used to put your your time and talent uh, into a Sunday morning kind of thing to help. Many of you have already emailed me, but listen, that time on Sundays has gone away. So yeah, we'll certainly have needs that'll be met throughout the week. But since every day is sort of groundhog day now, most of us have open Saturdays. And whether we're able to move around freely in the city or not, we'll be looking to meet the needs of our community. So you can sign up, volunteer to be a part of that team. We're going to organize it. I know it's going to be fluid. It's going to take different shapes as we move forward into the future. Uh, But you can volunteer 
to meet a need or request help if you have a need by going onto our homepage at Mosaic Church. You'll find a button, click that, and we'll begin to respond. So again, it's fluid. This is going to change. We know this. We're doing our best, though, to meet needs as a local church. But also, and especially, finally, before I pray, it's important that our community groups begin to do this as well as they already have. So you can find out how to connect with that kind of group in just a few moments. So let's pray as priests. Let's maximize what God can do and let's rhythm and respond as we move forward into our future together. Thanks for listening. For more info about how to get and stay connected to Mosaic Church, please visit us online at www.mosaicchurchaustin.com or download our app from your app store.